welcome to another in our series of Topical Pension Podcasts. And this one deals with one of pension's most high-profile topics, as is shown by the amount of cut-through it gets into the mainstream media, and that's ESG, the environmental, social and governance aspects of pension scheme investment. Trustees are coming under increased pressure from members, interest groups, the media and legislators to invest to achieve good. But sometimes that pressure conflicts with the trustees' existing duties under common law or the rules of their pension scheme. So in the next 15 to 20 minutes, we'll highlight three key issues for pension trustees and professionals to consider in the realm of ESG. I'll kick off by looking at the extent to which trustees can take into account non-financial factors when making an investment decision. We then move on to new legislation. And as ESG is an area that has attracted such interest, it's also provoked legislators, both in the UK and in Europe, to start drafting entire bookshelves of new regulation. So Thibaut Jeekings and his senior associate in the pensions team will talk you through what is lurking in that legislative pipeline. And finally, Laura Hewitt, a partner from our financial services team with particular expertise in advising sustainable investment funds, will talk you through the application of one of the new bits of law, the sustainability regulations. So to what extent can trustees legally take into account non-financial factors when making investment decisions? For example, can I choose fund A over fund B simply because A markets itself as providing, say, social housing? Does it matter if the predicted return of the two funds is different? Or does it help if you've conducted a survey of the membership with a majority wanting you to invest in that saintly fund A? These are important questions, and the first board of call for answering them is, of course, the law. So what does the law say? Well, legally, the starting point to this debate is that trustees should exercise their powers for their proper purpose. And in relation to pension scheme investment, this usually means acting in the beneficiary's best financial interests, because after all, a pension scheme is there to pay a pension. For a defined benefit scheme, that means looking to have sufficient assets to meet the DB promise. And for defined contribution members, allowing them to accumulate an adequate pot of cash at retirement. What it definitely doesn't mean is imposing your own views and biases on the decisions you make as a trustee. So just because you have a desire to fight for green causes in your personal life, you shouldn't then let that guide your judgment when making trustee investments. Rather, you still need to follow the proper decision making process, considering all relevant factors and ignoring the irrelevant ones. And indeed, it's clear that ESG factors, if financially material, are relevant and should be considered by trustees. And indeed, that's always been the case. If you've invested in an oil company, for example, that's drilling in a high risk area with poor oversight and governance, then that can obviously be a financial risk to your scheme's investments. And it would be remiss not to take that into account. However, it's worth noting that financially material does not mean that the factor in question needs to generate a financial return. It's now pretty clear that risk reduction can also be a financially material factor. For example, hedging can generate a loss and often does if the portfolio as a whole is doing well, and yet it's still considered to be an investment. Therefore, eliminating some other downside risk can be a financially material factor and thus one a trustee can legitimately consider. Similarly, it's also clear that financial materiality is measured on a scheme-specific basis as recent changes to the investment regulations highlight, and that it's not linked to, say, just short-term returns. On that basis, a long-term reduction of risk, say, deciding to move out of some fossil fuels because of the potential long-term cleanup costs, may also be acceptable, even if it does lead to a short-term loss. 
particularly for an immature scheme that's still open to accrual. So how about non-financial factors, such as making an investment on purely moral grounds? Well, on one hand, they don't go towards the main purpose of the trustee exercising its investment power. But on the other hand, the Law Commission has argued that trustees should be able to take into account non-financial factors where a two-stage test is met. Namely, that trustees should have good reason to think that members would share their concern. And secondly, that the decision should not involve a risk of significant financial detriment to the fund. But don't forget the Law Commission is not a statement of the law as it stands. And in our opinion, the better view of the current law is that non-financial factors can only be taken into account if they do not result in any financial detriment. In essence, it becomes a tiebreaker between two otherwise financially equal investments. That, of course, means that we don't agree that the Law Commission's two-stage test is where the law has got to. And that remains the case even after the recent Supreme Court judgment in Palestine, this case, on the face of it, approved the use of the Law Commission's two-stage test. However, we don't believe that the case is definitive, at least insofar as an occupational pension scheme is concerned. Notably, the case was dealing with the LGPS and the role of guidance given by the Secretary of State to administering authorities, rather than being directed at the trustees of occupational pension schemes. And furthermore, the support given by both the majority and minority in that decision was in passing, and doesn't fit well with the wording of the Law Commission's report. Indeed, arguably, they're different tests. As such, although the law may be moving, we're still of the opinion that the trustees of occupational pension schemes should approach non-financial factors with caution and be wary of relying on the Law Commission's test as authority for them taking into account as a relevant factor in their decision making. However, whichever formulation of the legal test you take, the practical significance of this exception is, in our view, virtually non-existent. If you accept either the Law Commission statement or the slight rewording of it in the Palestine case, then trustees need to both be satisfied that there's no risk of significant financial detriment and also that there's good reason to believe that members would support the approach, which following the Scargill case to us effectively means all the members of the scheme, not even a substantial majority, would do then this is a significant and most probably insurmountable hurdle for most pension schemes to jump. Furthermore, as the investment power and duties lie with the trustees, it's challenging to see that those duties could simply be discharged by seeking lay member support for a decision, if indeed that support could be obtained at all. This is particularly an issue for DB schemes, and indeed the LGPS, where it's not members that underwrite the risk of underfunding. In practice, though, we think that many of the factors identified as non-financial do, when analysed properly, have a financial impact, notably through the reduction of risk, and therefore might still be characterised as financially material. And if that's the case, then they can be taken into account. To end, there are also two other practical points for you to consider. Firstly, DC. Clearly, a DC self-select fund, if properly communicated, has more flexibility in this area as the member is selecting his own investment choices. But nonetheless, it's still incumbent on trustees to ensure that they select the options available to the member with regard to the proper purpose of that selection power. Secondly, and finally, trustees also need to be aware of the ancillary law in this area. For example, the need to obtain proper investment advice or delegate the scope of their own investment power under the rules, the expanding disclosure requirements, which don't always fit well with the position on non-financial factors, and also the potential need to consult with the sponsoring employer on changes to the statement of investment principles. 
Ultimately, this is an area that needs to be approached with caution by trustees. And with that, Tivo, over to you. Thank you, Dominic. So as Dominic said, ESG is constantly growing in importance and this is reflected in the increasing attention being paid to it by the government and pensions industry bodies. So I'm going to talk about the key upcoming developments in the world of ESG and pensions legislation. I'll touch first on this year's additional legislative requirements and then speak a little bit more about changes to further down the pipeline. So starting off from 1st of October this year, there are going to be additional disclosure requirements kicking in for pension scheme trustees. Trustees will need to be looking at their investment policies in their statement investment principles and updating them to include policies on dealing with other stakeholders, capital structure and management of conflicts of interest. They will also need to set out their arrangements with asset managers and how they incentivize them to align their investment strategies with trustee policies make decisions based on assessment of medium to long-term financial and non-financial performance, engage with investees, and also include information on duration of their arrangements with asset managers. Furthermore, the next annual investment report produced by trustees will have to include a statement about the implementation of engagement and voting policies. For DC and hybrid schemes, that investment report must include a fuller implementation statement covering um, the SIP and investment policies with um, information about how and to what extent the SIP has been followed, changes to the SIP and reviews to the SIP. DC and hybrid schemes will also need to publish their implementation statement on a publicly available website. Next up in the pipeline is the EU disclosure regulation which will come into force from 10th of March 2021. Laura will be talking more about that in greater depth shortly so um, I will just skip over that one. So following that, you've got 1st of October 2021, when further changes kick in in relation to disclosure of investment policies. So DB trustees will then have to provide a full implementation statement covering the updated information that they provided in, the, in their SIPs this year, along with um, the additional information that had to be added to the implementation statement from this year. And that will also need to be published on a publicly available website. So these are more certain legislative developments where the legislation has already been published and we know when it's coming into force. Further down the pipeline, we're expecting a few more developments. So first up is the pension schemes bill. This includes regulation making powers, which may impose requirements on some pension scheme trustees with a view to securing that there is effective governance of the scheme with respect to the effects of climate change. These will include risks arising from steps taken because of climate change and opportunities relating to climate change. So the requirements that may be imposed on pension scheme trustees will include reviewing the exposure of the scheme to those risks, assessing the assets of the scheme, determining, reviewing, and if necessary, revising a strategy for managing the scheme's exposure to risks, determining, reviewing, and again, if necessary, revising targets relating to the scheme's exposure to risks, and also measuring performance against those targets. It's not yet clear exactly what form these regulations will take because they haven't yet been published. So it's a bit of a watch this space, but it's very likely that something will be coming once the pension schemes bill comes into force. The other thing that I wanted to talk about was the Pensions Climate Risk Industry Group. So this has just finished a consultation on guidance for trustees on integrating climate-related risk assessment and management into their decision making. 
It's intended to provide practical guidance to trustees on how they can meet their disclosure and reporting obligations and provide a framework for them to report both in line with their current obligations and with the recommendations of the task force on climate related financial disclosure. So it includes a draft guide setting out the um, legal requirements for trustees and also a suggested approach for trustees in um, how to meet those requirements as well as some uh, technical guidance and on top of that. So the consultation for that closed in July this year and the government expectation at the moment is that large asset owners including pension schemes will be um, disclosing in line with this by 2022. So that covers off the main developments to coming down the pipeline. So now I'll hand over to Laura, who will be talking more about the EU disclosure regulation. Thank you, Timo, and hi, everyone. Um, as, as Timo mentioned, I'm going to talk a little bit about the ECE's disclosure regulation, the SFDR, as it's known. Of all the incoming ESG regulation, this is likely to have the widest impact and also be one of the trickiest to implement. Now, there's a lot of detail to be covered on this topic, so I'm going to focus today on some of its main points, just to make sure that it's on your radar. We'll think about the scope of the SFDR, the new concepts it introduces, and also the obligations it imposes. But first of all, what is the SFDR? Well, it's one of the building blocks of the European Commission's Action Plan on Sustainable Finance. It's aimed at increasing transparency as to how institutions integrate sustainability into their business and into the products they issue. It's known as the disclosure regulation, but that's really just the tip of the iceberg. Yes, the focus of the SFDR is the provision of information, but to a large extent, this is extremely detailed information that currently you just won't have access to. Simply gathering and analysing the data that you will need to make the disclosures will require significant system changes, and for many entities, also a significant allocation of resource. It also requires institutions to make strategic business decisions about their ESG approach, as firm level policies will also have to be disclosed, as we'll come on to in a minute. It's a lot of information to produce and maintain, and most of the obligations come into force in just a few months on 10th of March next year. So who are these institutions I refer to? Who does the SFDR apply to? Well, it applies at both the entity and the product level, as I said, and in respect of all relevant financial products, not just those with a stated ESG focus. So the scope is very broad. The entities covered are defined as financial market participants. And although the majority of the focus to date has been on the asset management industry, this definition also covers IORPs, manufacturers of pension products and PEP providers. The financial products covered include pension products, pension schemes and PEPs. So what is it that you have to disclose exactly? Well, to answer this question, there are many definitions and principles to understand, and that could take all day to go through. However, there are three main concepts that must be understood. The disclosure requirements focus on sustainable investments and on explaining the impact of sustainability risks and sustainability factors on your firm and products. In short, a sustainable investment must advance either a specific environmental or social objective, and it must do no significant harm as regards any such objective, and the investee companies must follow good governance. 
So this would mean that an investment that was contributing to environmental objectives, while at the same time falling down on the social or governance side, would not be considered to be a sustainable investment. A sustainability risk is an ESG event or condition that if it occurs, could cause an actual or potential material negative impact on the value of the investment. And sustainability factors means environmental, social and employee matters, respect for human rights, anti-corruption and anti-bribery. It's important to note that we're still within the European Supervisory Authority's consultation phase around the draft disclosure rules, and that's open until the 1st of September. These draft rules will form the regulatory technical standards we'll need to comply with, with extremely detailed and some very onerous and scientific requirements around the content, methodology and presentation of the disclosures. We expect these will be in the form of very detailed templates to be completed, including specific data around, for example, greenhouse gas emissions and labour standards. In other words, a lot of data which for now you just won't have access to. I don't expect there will be a significant change from the draft, although there has been a huge amount of industry feedback and we can expect the outcome of that consultation and on the regulatory technical standards by the end of the year. And then we come on to the obligations themselves. And here again, it's important to consider not only your products and the types of products, but also the firm-wide requirements. At an entity level, certain website disclosures are required, including sustainability risk policies. That is, information about the integration of sustainability risks in your investment decision-making process. You'll also need a statement on your due diligence policies with respect to the principal adverse impacts of your investment decisions on sustainability factors. And you'll need information on how remuneration policies are consistent with the integration of sustainability risks. These disclosures are all required by the 10th of March 2021. And as you can hear, there is a lot of detailed um, regulatory information and terms and principles to um, understand and comply with. At a product level, there are both pre-contractual and ongoing disclosures to be made with different obligations for products with an ESG objective and those without. In summary, these involve assessing and explaining the likely impacts of sustainability risks on the returns of the product, descriptions of whether and how a product considers principal adverse impacts on sustainability factors, and where a product promotes a particular ESG objective, quite a lot of prescribed information on how that objective is met. And again, most of these disclosures will apply from the 10th of March 2021. There is, it's clear, an enormous amount of work to do. And even though we don't yet have the detailed rules for the disclosure already, we're seeing a great deal of work go into the prep stages, particularly around gap analysis and considering how to access and deal with the enormous amount of information required. At a higher level, though, it's also crucial before diving into the detail to consider how to implement ESG consistently and effectively throughout your business and throughout your products ensuring that all relevant teams understand its importance. Although the SFDR will, will apply post-Brexit, the detailed regulatory technical standards I've been speaking about will not. And as such, there remains quite a bit of uncertainty about how firms in the UK should approach the disclosure requirements. I do believe, however, that detailed obligations will remain, although there may be some divergence. 
And this is particularly true because to date, the financial industry in the UK has really been a leading force in sustainable finance and the government has expressed a desire for it to remain so. So that's a very quick canter through the main impacts of SFDR and I hope it's given you some food for thought. Thank you also on behalf of Dominic and Thibault for listening to us today. We hope you enjoyed this episode of our CMS Pensions Lawcast and look forward to seeing you for the next episode on litigation in two weeks. Thank you.